Oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry. The lead out. I forgot the lead out. It'll, It'll come, back come back. That happened. That happens. It always does. CFHA is the bomb, and everybody should get involved and stay involved. I didn't even tell you to say that. (laughs) Welcome, everyone, to the Integrated Care Podcast. It is great to have you again with us this month. My name is Neftali Serrano. I'm the Chief Executive Officer of the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association. We've got part of our team here today, which I'll have them introduce themselves to you in a moment. But first, I want to say you as an audience were so lucky last month to have a fairly Neftali free podcast. Um, it, it, it was a great podcast. I want to talk about it here in a moment uh, before we get to this month's podcast. Uh, but if you have not checked last month's podcast from our team on uh, burnout and uh, wellness, uh, it's a great podcast to check out. So check out that. That's an episode directly preceding this one. But in any case, without further ado, let's introduce our podcast team here today. Grace, why don't you say hello to the folks out there? Hello, this is Grace Wilson from Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, where I am the behavioral medicine faculty at Great Plains Family Medicine Residency Program, part of the Integris Healthcare System. And as I like to do, I will give us a question to be kind of our introductory transition for the month. And so the question I found that I'm really curious to hear from both of you is if you could go back and relive in person any moment from history, what moment would you choose? I'll let you answer as you introduce yourself, and I'll give mine last. (laughs) Yeah, great. Yeah. So, Bridget, why don't you introduce yourself and see what you – I'd be interested to see what uh, reptile-like creature you might be. I know. I'm going first. Um, Yeah, so I'm Bridget Beachy. I'm a clinical psychologist, work as a behavioral health consultant as well as director of behavioral health at Community Health of Central Washington. And so as far as the question, I would actually like to – I've been there, and I think if I have my evolution right, uh, it may have been happening in multiple places, but the first time that somebody was able to speak intelligibly, and I just would wonder, I would imagine it was some type of uh, progression to where sounds then became language, but the first time somebody spoke like a real word as a, as a human, I think that would have been really cool to see. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, that... I. There's no way I could have uh, predicted that one. That's a wow. You you gave that a lot of thought, Bridget. I mean, like, like you've actually thought about this before. I have thought about this before. Like, how did it happen? You know, like one day, you know, there were Australopithecus, and we're going through, and then just all of a sudden, you know, you're more of a humanoid. At what point was it language? What versus? It's your questions. Yeah, it's kind of a fundamental question of what makes us people and a community and how do we relate to one another so it's really yeah it's a fascinating thought wow that's fantastic okay <laughs> neftali <laughs> oh man see it's hard it's always hard to anything i say is going to sound really really dumb compared to that one i mean that that one had like you know well i'll uh, say mine is much history. more mine is much more recent history than that if it makes you feel any better <laughs> <laughs> well, all right. So, you know, I mean, I, I, the first things that popped into my mind were like really sort of a little bit too cliche, you know, Abraham Lincoln, you know, whatever, uh, or, or that time period. But if, if I could time travel, um, I think uh, 1969 has been on my mind lately. Uh, first of all, because those who know me know that I am a big New York Met fan. And 1969 was the year they won their first World Series. Not that anybody out there cares. Um, and it's also the time when uh, the, of the first moon landing, which has been celebrated uh, this year. And uh, I've always been a big space fan and a big fan of exploration, even though I, I probably would be absolutely terrified to be locked into in a spaceship, particularly the oh. kind of ships they were traveling on. But I think it would just be cool to like take that first step onto the moon and just to see the earth from there. You know, this is what I get for asking you to go before me because I also chose the moon landing. No. I did, yes, except I would be firmly on the ground. (laughs) I think being being in a huge room of people or even, you know, at the NASA headquarters, you know, people kind of collectively holding their breath as that moment happened and just – the feat of technology and the wonder and sense of possibility, I think would be really magical. I don't think I'd want to be actually on the moon, uh, but that would be the moment in history that I would really love to witness. 
Yeah. Oh, wow. That That's funny that we picked uh, the same one. Maybe mm-hmm. 1969 is on, on our brains. Maybe so. so. Yeah. Cool. Well, great question. Uh, we have, of course, for those of you who listen to our podcast, our other team members, Deepu George, Amber Gordon, and Jeffrey Ring, are not with us today. They're otherwise, uh, they're busy, important people, not like the rest of us. <laughs> um, no, but they actually have some really cool things they have going on. In fact, Bridget, you have cool stuff going on too. So Bridget, uh, in addition to her full-time job, also does some consulting with her husband, David Bauman. And you guys are actually in a hotel room right now, right? Yep. We're in uh, uh, in Corvallis, Oregon, which is uh, right where Oregon State is. So we're going to be helping a health system to get their integrated behavioral health uh, up and going. Yeah. And so uh, Deepu, for example, is doing the same thing this morning. He's doing some advocacy work within his own health system for integrated care. Um, and Jeffrey is, uh, of course, doing some of his own consulting work elsewhere as well. So uh, they will join us again, hopefully next month. But for now, you have us here. So before we get to our uh, main topic of the day, just a couple of quick reminders. Um, of course, you guys hear me talk about our conference a lot. Well, today, we're actually going to have uh, one of our special segments today. We have a special bonus podcast with two special segments for you. Uh, one of our special segments is uh, are the co-chairs of this year's CFHA conference in Denver, Colorado, October 17th to 19th. Uh, and they are going to talk about the really exciting plenaries that they have planned, some really creative, not just content, but actually delivery of content uh, that, that um, is sort of artistic, uh, creative. Um, we're really trying to get away from just, you know, PowerPoint type stuff that puts us all to sleep. So uh Keep an ear for later on for the special mm-hmm. segment, but keep an eye on our website, integratedcareconference.com, if you haven't registered yet. Um, register soon, particularly because hotel rooms uh, at the main conference site are limited. The other reminder is simply that we love your feedback, and uh, to give feedback to us, to ask questions, to suggest podcast topics, you can contact us via email at info at cfha.net, info at cfha.net. We'd love to hear from you about any of that stuff. All right. So uh, before we break here, uh, I just wanted to, again, give a shout out to the team for the great conversation uh, related to burnout and wellness. And I know we could probably talk for an entire other podcast about it, but I, I think the, you know, I just wanted to kind of express my gratitude to the team and really to CFHA members for how uh, they've sort of handled this conversation, which has been ongoing. And for those of you who are not members, we had a really long, extensive, um, really personal conversation on our listserv about burnout wellness that cued the podcast that we had last month. And what, what I think struck me about it was that, um, uh, you know, this is a, in the context of integrated care, it made perfect sense to talk about issues of burnout and wellness. And that juxtaposition really strikes me. Uh, And I know a lot of people are talking about it, but I think what struck me about it was, you know, that because we're talking about building good, healthy teams, it naturally brings up the question of not just how do we do great patient care from these teams, but how do we care for our team members? And uh, what you guys did such a great job of was really straddling the two sides of that conversation. There's a side that's about the individual and what the individual can do and how they can face, confront, um, work through, improve their own circumstance, their own reaction, reactivity to what's happening in their environment. Uh, in the in the healthcare environment, and then the other side of looking at the systems and looking at the brokenness in the systems, looking at some of the injustice injustices not just in the health system but in the communities that our patients live in that we then have to kind of deal with through vicarious trauma, et cetera. And I just really appreciated that uh, that ability to straddle that conversation. So I was extremely grateful for that. It's obviously an ongoing conversation uh, for us. So to that end, uh, you know, so Grace, I usually lead these podcasts, but you did a great job leading these podcasts. So you have to tell me what was your secret as you led that podcast? Oh, I don't even have to think twice. I can tell you exactly what my secret was. Fantastic editing. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> really, really good editing was my secret, which I had nothing to do with, but I super, super appreciate. <laughs> All right. So that <laughs> that's you're being humble about that. But that does give us an opportunity to put a shout out to Kevin Radine again, who does a great job editing these podcasts for us. So, Kevin, you are the man. And thanks, Grace, for leading a great conversation. Sure. All right. We'll be back in a moment. So here's the situation. You're a clinic trying to implement what should be a simple screening process for depression, and you're just not getting results. And you're trying to get your primary care providers working together with your mental health professionals, but the two sides just aren't jiving. Meanwhile, everyone agrees that the need is great and something needs to be done. Well, that's where CFHA's technical assistance services come in. We work with projects large and small from one-hour consultations to 1,000 hours and help you implement integrated care pathways that are evidence-based and grounded in practical know-how. Our stable of consultants are here to help. Interested? Then simply go to cfha.net slash technical assistance or email us at info at cfha.net. Join the growing list of organizations who have benefited from the best guidance for integrated care around. That's cfha.net slash technical assistance or email us at info at cfha.net. All right, and we are back. Um, As we said, we have a couple of special segments today, so we'll have a little bit of an abbreviated podcast and we'll have an abbreviated news and notes section. So uh, without further ado, here are our news and notes. All right. So uh, today's podcast is on the social determinants of health, uh, or one of the social determinants of health, uh, food. So we're going to be talking about food and how it, how it is talked about, how it is addressed uh, from the perspective of team-based care, et cetera. So on that, uh, Jeffrey Ring, who wasn't able to be here, but is really passionate about issues like this, particularly social determinants of health, sent uh, this note. Now, this is a... Uh, July 25th Forbes article written by Bruce Japson. It's called Congress Warms to Paying for Social Determinants and Health Industry Cheers. It's a really good, simple, quick read, but it's about an act called the Social Determinants Accelerator Act, and it's a bipartisan-sponsored act that will essentially help incentivize for Medicaid recipients clinics and hospitals participating and collaborating with community-based organizations, like we'll talk about today, food banks, for example. And so as with most of these, there's no indication of how likely it is to be passed, who knows what this Congress can or cannot do at this point. But it's really, really interesting to know that folks are really paying serious attention to this at the highest level. So that link will be in the show notes uh, for you uh, as soon as I'm able to get those up there. The other thing I wanted to point out was actually an ABC News article, and I, I, uh, I hope that we get a chance to do a podcast on this at some point. However, this ABC News article uh, that we'll put on the show notes is about how some of the immigration changes are going to be affecting immigrants and their health-seeking behaviors. So the article's title is, uh, is Doctors Say New Rule Will Mean Sicker Immigrants, and the first paragraph says it all. Diabetics skipping regular checkups, young asthmatics not getting preventative care, a surge in expensive emergency room visits, doctors and public health experts warn of poor health and rising costs they say will come from sweeping Trump administration changes that would deny green cards to many immigrants who use Medicaid, as well as food stamps and other forms of public assistance. So with this particular population, certainly from our standpoint as healthcare providers, we're concerned about what these political changes mean for health and wellness for these folks. So uh, check that link out as well. That's an ABC News article that we'll post in the show notes. All right, that's all we have for News and Notes. All right, on to our main topic of the day, which is food. Now, uh, the first thing I want to kind of uh, point out and sort of cue you guys as a group to talk about is, you know, the three of us are are behavioral health professionals. We all work in primary care. Um, And yet, I'm wondering how much training we have related to one of the most basic behaviors and one of the most impactful behaviors that patients have, which is eating. 
So think back to your training and tell me how much training did you have on food and eating? Grace, any thoughts? Not a lot. I do remember learning from a nutritionist at one point who came and gave a lecture. Um, and then also it coming up in different conversations. So talking about food scarcity in the context of social determinants of health. Uh, but as far as, you know, a real solid foundation on nutrition and nutrition guidelines and different dietary changes or needs for different populations or different health conditions, really that, that wasn't a component of my education. Yeah, yeah, that pretty much mirrors uh, some of my experience. Bridget, how about how about you? Yeah, it wasn't in the formal education, uh, either in my bachelor's, master's, or doctorate. Um, however, at my internship at HealthPoint in Seattle, in the integrated care uh, model alongside a nutritionist. So I would say most of what I do today is because of her, um, Denise Ward. So she was a fantastic nutritionist, and uh, we would share handouts, and we would do visits where – I would go in, she would go in, the PCP would go in. And so it was a lot of on the job. And then I did my dissertation on um, weight management in primary care. So most of what I was doing was my own study, and it wasn't necessarily guided by any type of curriculum. And that, that I think, is just one of the striking things. I think that's such a core human behavior, uh, core meaning core to their to mental and behavioral health, um, is not as uh, strongly addressed as what you'd think of, given how how important it is. Now, the, the topic of food and nutrition is a big topic, and there's a variety of different angles to kind of come at it. And I'm just going to sort of give an overview of it before we dive in, right? So then I think the part that probably, I would guess, the three of us had the most training on was uh, really actually disordered eating, right? The issues related to what happens when people are not uh, – interacting with food in a, in a healthy way, which is ironic if you think about it. Um, so, so I'm pretty good at what happens when people don't eat well, whether it's uh, <laughs> issues like bulimia or uh, anorexia, et cetera. But then there's sort of the larger issues related to particularly those of us who work in underserved settings where there's food scarcity um, or poor nutrition, poor access to healthy foods, right? So that's kind of talking about nutrition as a social determinant of health, which we've mentioned here. And then there's really this issue of nutrition at the level of family and culture. Um, so, you know, when we interact with food and food issues, we're always interacting with really family dynamics, um, how uh, families organize themselves around food, how families in their culture organize themselves around food and create meaning around that, uh, etc. So, there's all these different sort of levels at which we could really talk about food uh, with respect to this. And then the other nuance that I'll just sort of bring up as well is this recent sort of issue around body shaming and food and the ways in which our culture has made some substantial shifts in the connection between food and your body shape and uh, what, that, what that means, particularly for women but um, really across the board culturally. So there's a whole lot of areas to talk about with regard to how food and healthcare intersect. What I'm wondering if we could spend a few minutes on is just really talking first at the very concrete level, particularly for our new early clinicians out there. You know, we've had the luxury of working, it sounds like all three of us, in really good teams. And some of those teams have involved really good team members who do have some of that expertise around food. So when you're interacting with someone around issues of food, um, let's say a diabetic, for example, what are the things that you've learned? What are the perspectives that you've learned on the job uh, as a team member that have been helpful to your patients and to your teams, the PCPs around you, and if you have a nutritionist, the, the nutritionists around you? How have you interacted as a team member there uh, in ways that have been helpful to those folks? Bridget, do you have some thoughts about that? Yeah, I think that... The biggest thing that I see new clinicians doing is not really understanding how to put the eating behavior, as you alluded to um, so eloquently, Naftali, into, into context. You know, uh, they're looking at it as an individual behavior. They're looking at it as willpower a lot of times. And I was, you know, the same way, so I'm not being critical to my previous self. But we really have to understand, what is this person's day like? If I can't imagine a day in this person's shoes, and this is my opinion, my humble opinion, I feel like I cannot come up with a collaborative plan. 
If I can't picture what is their family structure, what is the relationship, what do they do for an income or for work, what is essentially their daily routine, because that's where you get into trouble because you come in with all these good ideas. Oh, well, we can cut out this and we can add in this and we can eliminate that. And those things are all great. Let's do some self-monitoring. Let's do food logs. All, again, fantastic. But if it's not taken into the context of the human in front of you, they shake their head. They say, yeah, yeah, yeah. They've heard it before. They've come in. They already know they're obese. I've had many people where I walk in the door and they say, I know I'm fat. I get it before I even speak. And that makes me like, honestly, it makes me want to cry. Just like that, that you would think that that's what's going to happen because that tells me that something similar has happened in the past. And so I want to break that. So when I go into the room, I want to just get to know you as a human. I want to know what your day is like and a day in the life of you. And then from there, once I know that, then we can come up with a collaborative plan together. And when I go back to share that with the team, nine out of 10 times the physician's like, oh my gosh, I had no idea about that or about this. And it's not their fault. You know, they have five minutes and they have a lot going on. But that's where the team aspect comes in is because I can let them know what is feasible, where are they at with it. And then that's also, I don't have a nutritionist where I'm working now, but if I did, I would let them know about the context and maybe, okay, they're struggling with, they need something that's more convenient or there's a price issue so that the nutritionist can then put their spin on it. I think some of what we can do, so much of what we do, regardless of whether it's nutrition or anything else, is facilitating the conversation. So opening space for the unspoken and bringing out into the open the issues or fears or things that typically don't get talked about. Because just like you talked about, Bridget, there's that limited time frame. There's so many other things that the providers and the patient need to accomplish. So just opening the space for that unspoken. And then another big part of what we can do, I think, because I was thinking a lot about what's, you know, what really is my scope of practice with that limited um, background and education that I have on nutrition, um, which I, I haven't worked in a system side by side with a nutritionist. And I haven't, um, you know, done the extensive independent work that you've done, Bridget, in studying this. So much of what I can do is not about making the nutrition recommendations or guidelines because I know enough about insulin and diabetic medication and all that to know that it's very dependent and in conjunction with the food. So I'm not going to tell a patient, well, you should cut down on your carbs when I don't know what they've worked out with their health provider and, you know, with the nutritionist. That's outside my scope. But what's in my scope, and this is for me specifically, just knowing my limitations, is facilitating that conversation that you're talking about. What is the day-to-day life? What are the fears? Also, what have been the experiences and traumas that you've had in the past from the healthcare system or the judgment or the bias or the stigma Mm -hmm. that you've faced? Um, And allowing that to hopefully repair the join of the system and rebuild trust um, between the patients and the system. No, so I think those are awesome points. I I think, you know, what I've challenged myself to do is actually to bone up a little bit more on nutrition. And I've done, I've taken some courses in the last few years. Uh, I've done some of my own reading. I've talked to my primary care provider friends and tried to kind of glean what their understanding of things are. And the truth is, it's really been in flux. There's been a lot of changes with regard to how this has been talked about and dealt with. So for example, uh, like 10 years ago, I was, I was talking to patients about a simple equation, um, calories in and calories out. Um, and so I was basically saying, Hey, look, you know, if, if you're overweight, and again, I wasn't being this harsh, but if you're overweight, it's your fault because you're taking too many calories in and not enough of those calories are coming out, right? Diet and exercise, essentially. And uh, that has totally changed. I mean, in the last, I would say, three to five years, I've shifted my practice entirely. Some of that is just by sheer experience because you look at folks who are doing everything they should be doing and they still have weight issues. And so what a lot of my uh, advice has shifted to has been towards more emphasis on quality of foods and the kind of foods, understanding that there's a complex interaction with each individual as to how they respond to foods, not even just general categories of foods like carbohydrates, but actually just how they respond to certain 
particular foods and how they respond to sugar in particular in foods. And so um, a lot of what I talk to folks is, hey, some of this is beginning to understand how your body responds to particular foods. And the more high quality foods, the more whole foods, the less processed foods, the more likely you're going to be able to process that food in a calorically efficient way. And that's mainly my message. The other key thing that that folks can take home is I've also changed my understanding of exercise in relation to food. Um, you know, I'm I'm a guy that loves. I actually love working out. It's really important for my mental health, et cetera. I love exercise. It's a great thing, and it is great for your cardiovascular health. But the truth is that exercise is not really good for weight loss, for example. Um, and I, I started when I started researching and learning this, I started doing this with patients who were trying to lose weight, um, basically not changing their diet, but trying to mm-hmm. lose weight by, by exercising. Well, the interesting thing was I, I looked up and I said, well, in order to compensate for that 200 calories of French fries that you had from McDonald's, you'd, you'd have to run, you know, at a pretty high pace for about 50 minutes. That, that just compensates for one bag of French fries. I'm like, that's... Like, that's not possible. You can't, you know, the, if you're thinking of a calories in, calories out model, that doesn't work. And so so the quality and the kinds of foods and being sort of more tailored individually and, and encouraging the individual to learn about how they respond to particular foods and particularly, and particularly with a particular focus on sugar and foods has been the main emphasis of my education with patients thus far. All right, so thanks for those tips. So that's really helpful. Now, I want to wrap up our podcast, our main topic here today, just by doubling back from the individual level to the larger level, and that's talking about food as a social determinant of health. And in our uh, listserv, uh, when I asked the listserv about this, um, it was really interesting to me what people were doing in their clinics with regard to dealing with food scarcity and dealing with uh, poor quality nutrition in their communities. Um, And a lot of that involved with connecting with community uh, organizations, etc. So let me ask you guys what, what you guys have seen folks do with regard to food issues, whether it's connecting to food pantries, etc. Um, have you guys come across any things that you feel like have worked pretty well as far as helping folks who don't have access to food or qual- access to quality foods? I mean, I haven't really seen a silver bullet much. It seems like it's an ongoing struggle. We have a case management team where they can put them in touch with folks in the community and work out uh, hot lunches at school, um, work out those aspects. I also have uh, links um, if they have internet access, which most people do at this point on their phone that I'm working with. And uh, so it's a link to nutritious foods at a low cost. So it has your brown rices and bananas and beans and other things that are uh, lower cost. But honestly, I, I really think that a huge part of it has to do, in my humble opinion, again, the relational aspects with food, it's, um, it, it seems like it's a lot deeper than just not having access. It's, it, it's just deeper. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's access, but it's also, yeah, I get what you're saying where it's like, it, it's access to foods, but it's also like how folks, um, for example, I, I've struggled with folks who have, um, access to food stamps, for example, but their choices with regard to, so they have access and as far as resources, but then some of the choices they make when they go to the store, for example, are maybe not the best choices, which has a cultural context embedded to that. That's sort of, there's, there's a history behind that purchase behavior that is part of what we then have to work on. Grace? Yeah. I, yeah. I was just going to say, I think that there is a lot of power in us in, in addition to not being siloed from the medical community, you know, behavioral health and mental health being siloed, also not creating silos between us and the other people doing important work in our communities. Um, because it is so culturally and context specific and because it is so bound up and so complicated in people's lives outside of just their health, we can't just write a prescription for better nutrition and then it's, you know, everything's fixed. I think that building those partnerships and looking out to see who's doing work in your community in this area and who 
how can we partner with them and build together with them it, it can be some of the most fruitful relationships so i think we have so much work to do that sometimes we just put our heads down and do what we can um but we need to lift our eyes back up and look around us and see who are the people and the advocates in our communities that we can partner together with and just you know multiply the impact that we're able to have uh, that's a fantastic point, and that mirrors what what happened in that listserv discussion, Grace. Because there was, I was so impressed by the work that people had done in their clinics to connect to food pantries, to have food uh, brought to their clinics so that they could actually hand uh, food supplies to their patients, uh, to have uh, actually uh, recommendations on shelves in food pantries, to have uh, menus that people could take with them to shop specifically for certain kinds of foods, to develop relationships with those food pantries so that they, the food pantries uh, source some of the kinds of foods that, for example, a diabetic might uh, most benefit from. Uh, so that was really outstanding and really encouraging for me that people had put that effort in. In fact, I made a sort of summary of the discussion here that I'll 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 uh, note here at the end of our podcast. So the, there are six points that came out of that listserv discussion. So one was the obvious one. Addressing food is definitely a crucial aspect of integrated care. You cannot do good integrated care without addressing food. Secondly, food insecurity and access to healthy food choices are both important to address. So access and quality. Third, having immediate destigmatized local solutions are important to have on hand. So none of this, just hand a sheet of paper to someone and say, here's your food pantry. Four, develop relationships, as you were saying, Grace, with food banks and other suppliers and programs. Five, screen proactively so you can identify folks as folks are not necessarily coming in saying, hey, I'm hungry, or hey, I lack access to quality food. So screening proactively. And then finally, develop workflows for your teams that include uh, a variety of team members. They can include community health workers, case managers, but also what's your workflow with regard to your BHCs, your other team members around this issue so that uh, the team operates effectively together. All right, as usual, we run out of time on these topics. We're going to transition here real quick to our two special segments. They're really cool special segments, folks, so I hope you really enjoy them. Grace, can you lead us in into your conversation with uh, Dr. Tina Runyon? Yes, I sat down with Dr. Runyon at the Society for Teachers of Family Medicine's annual meeting in Toronto um, this spring, and we just had a, a brief conversation about ethics and integrated care and the different ways that those two areas converge. So I hope that our listeners enjoy that conversation. Awesome. Here's Tina. Okay, so let's start by having you introduce yourself, if that's okay. I'm Tina Runyon. I am a psychologist and a professor in the Department of Family Medicine and Community Health at University of Massachusetts Medical School. Okay, thank you for being with us. Um, we wanted to have this conversation just some about the idea of ethics and integrated care, and that comes up for our listeners in a lot of different ways, and there's a lot of different issues that come up under that umbrella. So maybe we could start by scoping a little bit. What do you see as some of the biggest ethical issues when we're talking about integrated behavioral health? So I'm going to back up just a hair because I want to be um, really explicit and conscious about multiple disciplines fulfilling the role of a behavioral health clinician in integrated care. And so the reason ethics gets so complicated so quickly is partly because of the blend of many different disciplines, not just um, the physician side with the behavioral health side, but within behavioral health, there's a lot of different disciplines that are that are working together as a team in integrated uh, care. And so I'm a psychologist, for example, and we have a um, psychological code of ethics, but it is not uncommon for behavioral health clinicians to be um, at the level of a social worker, or some states allow um, licensing at the level of a master's um, clinician, or there are marriage and family therapists. Each of those disciplines has their own ethical code. Now, while they are more similar than the physician one, in other words, the social worker, psychologist, MFTs, ethical code have more similarities compared to physicians. But there are also some um, intricate 
uh, details and differences in those as well. Okay, so can you give me some examples of how that conflict comes into play sometimes when there's a difference in those ethical codes? Right, so the ethical codes that are at least um, similar among the behavioral health clinicians really focus a lot on not just safeguarding the public, but also around issues of really full informed consent, um, things that have a lot to do with privacy and confidentiality. And that includes things not just related to how information is shared verbally, but how things are shared in written form, as well as this issue of multiple or dual relationships is another big area where our codes are pretty clear about trying at all costs to avoid those. And you put those in direct contrast to physicians who are working in primary care. And a lot of the physicians we work with are in family medicine. And in family medicine, they are seeing cradle to grave and they really covet being able to see multiple members of a family and not just a nuclear family, a intergenerational family and aunts and uncles and cousins. And that's really so much, so core to their identity as a family doctor and the context in which they understand their patient's care. And so it's, um, it makes perfect sense from their perspective if they are seeing multiple members of the family, well, why wouldn't their team member, their behavioral health clinician, also want to, of course, see multiple members of the same family because it's just providing more of a context. So that's one example. I would say those are some of the core areas where these ethical challenges really come up for somebody who is a behavioral health clinician working in an integrated setting. Um, there's probably some others, but I think around um, multiple or dual relationships, informed consent, privacy and confidentiality, and, and probably this issue around um, scope of practice, scope of competence, as well as episodes of care, typically in a specialty mental health setting, and that would be true regardless of your discipline on the behavioral health side, you're thinking about an episode of care having a clean start and a clean stop. And once we begin to practice in a primary care environment where there is continuity um, and people are coming into that clinic very fluidly years, you know, for years, there are not such clear distinctions between when is an episode of care starting and if it ever ends, for example, we're not opening charts and closing charts. All of the patients are potentially our patients at any given time. So those are, those are some areas where the clarity uh, in what we learn as far as our ethical codes become extremely blurry as soon as we step into the setting of integrated care. Do you know of any efforts to try to be more specific in ethical codes or to bridge some of these gaps between disciplines? So I can only speak to what I know to be happening within the psychology world um, in the American Psychological Association. I am part of a, a working group that is um, actually working very diligently and creatively to try to offer some guidance to the core group within APA that is actually currently rewriting the ethics code. And we are trying to offer them both perspective as well as some guidance on how some of these codes as currently written are fairly limiting for people going into integrated care work. And my fear is that unless we push the envelope on that, that it's actually a deterrent to people going into integrated care because if you learn things in one particular uh, model and then you are being asked to work in a model that really pushes the boundaries in that area without sufficient uh, training and supervision that feels incredibly uncomfortable um, to a clinician, particularly a young clinician who's just licensed, this feels like really dangerous, risky behavior, and you see other people who are doing it, but it may not quite feel safe for you. And my worry is that we will um, lose a really necessary workforce if we don't begin to push the envelope on those, um, those ethical codes, not to create situations where people are practicing unethically, but actually um, allow for a little bit more bandwidth for um, integrated care clinicians to practice in models that are more congruent with their primary care colleagues while still being very cognizant and attending to the potential for ethical lapses and having models and processes in place that can support them to explore those. 
That's a really great effort. And one of the questions I actually wanted to ask you was kind of how to discern and what to do with that discomfort. Because mm-hmm. I'm a supervisor of a lot of early beginning therapists and they come in and they have these big questions like, wait, I'm supposed to, what? There's no, I don't have to get them to sign a form. Like, how do I? Mm-hmm. And so helping them navigate that. And, and it, we talk about that discomfort that they feel. Mm-hmm. And in training as a behavioral health provider, you have to learn to trust your gut. Mm-hmm. And you have to learn that that discomfort might be telling you something. But I wonder if you have any advice for people who are listening to our podcast, maybe who are new to working in integrated care and get that discomfort feeling and feel like, oh no, I'm being asked to do something unethical, but maybe it's just that it's new. So how do they tease out when they should listen to that or when they might need to be able to tell it, no, it's okay. You could be quiet right now. Yeah. So my initial response to that would be supervision and mentorship. I think being able to, uh, identify that obviously is really important so somebody's feeling that discomfort and you're right that there's so many things that feel uncomfortable when you are learning and particularly if you're learning in an integrated care environment you are fast and furious put into situations that you feel are outside of your comfort zone and maybe even competence zone hopefully supervisors are assessing your competence um appropriately and it is just your confidence that is lacking so that that feeling is probably a a common one and when that happens sometimes the response is just to tamp it down right is to say like oh i always feel this way when i'm approaching new situations so i'm going to ignore it and we don't want people to ignore it we want them to be in a safe enough supervisor or mentor relationship to ask about it and i think it's in that asking and discussing that the clarity actually does start to to come about. I do think some some things start to crystallize around um, understanding why that discomfort comes up. For example, multiple relationships and then really being able to assess the risk as best you can and think about alternatives. Um, I, I do think that um, when people have been practicing in these settings for a long, long time, their professional network is much more physician-centric, if you will, than behavioral health clinician-centric because we tend to be one of a few or maybe just one of only working in the context with others. And so I think there's always that risk for some drift away from professional standards. And so being um, being really aware of that, not just on the beginner side, right? Because I think you're right. That is a place where people can identify, um, oh, is this okay? And as long as they're asking a question, I think it's wonderful learning. But on the more seasoned side, if we stop asking, is this okay? (laughs) Because we're so used to practicing um, really along with our physician colleagues that that's probably an equally dangerous, you know, dangerous place to be Mm -hmm. and recognizing that most of these situations, um, the guidelines are there and I think appropriately named as guidelines, not necessarily hard and fast rules. And we don't yet have a um, standard in which people going to your professional organization of your state, for example, most of the people there are still not going to be in non-integrated care settings. So places like CFHA, the listserv of CFHA, I think the culture of CFHA actually does create some of that safe space to begin to ask these questions and to get some perspective. And I continue to serve in that role with people who have graduated from my postdoc and vice versa. Um, So uh, asking these questions of one another and continuing to ask them to refine it. Yeah, we're definitely each other's best resources. Um, I forgot to tell you, I was going to ask this, but are there any other resources that you would point people towards um, readings or presentations or people or anything that someone who was listening who wanted to know more maybe could go to? Sure. Um, There's several people, myself included, who have written about ethics. Um, I recently wrote a paper with some colleagues that's in the clinical psychology and medical settings, 2018, I believe. There's uh, an article there that actually promotes a particular model that we um, that we develop that's um, really heavily emphasizes a continual process around um, checking in with yourself and checking in with patients and checking in with supervisors about some of these ethical issues. Um, 
I know that uh, some of the other um, collaborators within CFHA have written on this as well. Um, Jeff Ryder has written around about ethics, and I would be remiss in naming all the names because I'm more likely to leave some out than yes, I will be inclusive. But, um, but I think that uh, CFHA probably does have um, some good resources for that. Mm-hmm. We'll be sure to include a few in the show notes for people as well. Yeah, I also think the division, um, the health psychology division has a primary care special interest group through APA. They may have some. I'm not as familiar with what might be out there to support social workers in integrated care settings um, other than CFHA, which Mm -hmm. is, again, why CFHA (laughs) is the bomb and everybody should get involved and stay involved. I didn't even tell you to say that. (laughs) Uh, Well, thank you so much for your time and just for opening this conversation and helping us as we're thinking through some of these issues. I think that there's there's meta stuff going on and then there's Mm -hmm. the in the trenches and any time that we can bridge that and communicate about that the better. I, and I just will say for those of us who are also working in situations with other learners, us being vulnerable enough to have these conversations and talk about ethics or talk about what language might be more um, familiar in a medical setting around boundaries, for example, boundary crossings or boundary violations, that it provides a platform for our residents if you're in a training environment and faculty to begin to talk about that as well because as sticky as an issue as this is we as behavioral health clinicians get much more education and training about it than they do on the medical side and Mm -hmm. so there's not a lot of opportunity for them to begin to discuss those things and understand from our perspective so again that shared understanding goes a long way so um yeah, so I keep asking the questions. Well, that's a great point. Again, well, thank you so much for your time. I'm You're so welcome. glad we were able to sit down together in person. And then, Me too. Um, we will uh, put some more resources for everyone in the show, in the show notes. notes. Great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. All right, and we're back. Uh, thanks to Dr. Tina Runyon for her time, and thank you, Grace, for that uh, interview. Um, as a side note, uh, Tina is part of a work group that CFHA is also part of, and, and Tina is part of CFHA, so there's a lot of CFHA people on there uh, that's really working on the uh, an adaptation of the APA Ethics Code uh, recommendations to the committee that's adapting the APA Ethics Code or updating the APA Ethics Code. So keep an eye out in the next 6 to 12 months for the work of that committee. Committee, but it's really cool to know that folks like Tina and others are, are really working to update our ethics code with respect to integrated care. So I promised you at the very beginning of the show that we'd have a special segment related to our conference. This is really cool. These are really fun people. So take a listen here to uh, the conference co-chairs for our conference in Denver, Colorado. They'll introduce themselves. I think you're going to really enjoy what they have to say. Even if you're not coming to the conference, uh, just listen in just for the fun of hearing them get excited about really geeky integrated care stuff. Here they are. Hi, my name is Glenda Mutinda. I am the Director of Interprofessional Wellbeing at JPS Health Network in Fort Worth, Texas. And I am one of the conference co-chairs for the 2019 CFHA conference. Uh, With me, I have uh, three guests who will introduce themselves. I am Randall Wrights, the Director of Behavioral Medicine at the St. Mary's Family Medicine Residency in Grand Junction, Colorado, and a conference co-chair. My name's Alex Reed, and uh, I'm the Director of Behavioral Health Education at the Family Medicine Residency in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Colorado here in lovely Denver. And my name is Ben Miller. I am the founder of the Alex Reed and Randall Wrights Fan Club. And in my day job to pay the bills for our lack of membership for that fan club, I am the Chief Strategy Officer for Wellbeing Trust. Awesome. Thank you all so much. Um, We're going to start in order with talking about the plenary sessions. So if you don't mind, Ben Miller, could you please describe the opening plenary uh, for the conference this year? Absolutely. So if there's going to be one session that you want to attend this year at CFHA, it's Thursday night from 430 to 6. And let me tell you why. Policy is probably the most important topic of anybody that anybody should have in the country right now. Not only do we have an election coming up in 2020, but it's something that is going to make or break this whole integrated mental health primary care thing. 
So Thursday night, we've got a star-studded cast. We've actually got folks that are coming from outside the Colorado to tell their story on policy. And let me tell you who we got. First of all, we've got the Deputy Secretary of Health and Human Services from Virginia, a guy named Marvin Figueroa. Marvin is an extremely outspoken advocate for why we need to pay better attention to mental health. He does this not only for his state employees that he oversees, but he does this for the Commonwealth of Virginia, which has done some pretty impressive things in policy over the last couple of years. And one of them in particular that you all may be interested in is this whole Medicaid expansion thing. I don't know if you're following those trends like I do, but Virginia did expand Medicaid and it was a big to do. We've also got John McCarthy, uh, who has claimed to fame as multiple things, but John has successfully expanded Medicaid in Ohio, but he also ran Medicaid in DC, which is a unique place to run Medicaid. And John will be bringing his experience running Medicaid in two different uh, parts of the country, but also just what it's like to get both sides of the aisle to move forward an agenda around coverage. We've got Leslie Herod, Representative Leslie Herod, who's actually my representative in Colorado. She is also an outspoken advocate for mental health and did something pretty cool in Colorado last year where she got a ballot initiative um, passed in Denver so that we all taxed ourselves more to put money towards mental health. Pretty cool stuff, relatively unprecedented and something that I hope that the representative will talk a little bit about. And this will be moderated by a good friend and colleague, John Daly, who if you're in the Denver metro area or just in Colorado in general, he's the guy whose voice you hear on the radio when the local NPR affiliate comes on to talk about health. He's the health reporter for Colorado Public Radio, an amazing guy. So just two more minutes really quickly on why this plenary is going to be absolutely stunning. Not only do we have these amazing folks, but we've also modeled it after this near horizon, far horizon. And I don't want to tell you too much about it because I want to whet your appetite a little bit, but let's just imagine that you've got experts that begin to talk about what's right in front of us. What is it we need to do tomorrow to advance policy to support mental health? That's, that's all well and good. I mean, it's definitely things we need to be talking about. We're going to do it in a creative way. There might be uh, some song lyrics. There might be some visuals interspersed, but really it's just like, all right, leaders, what's happening tomorrow? In the same vein, we're also going to talk about far horizon. What's coming on the horizon? What's in the future? for advancing mental health through policy and get a little sense of when they look into the tea leaves or read their crystal ball or whatever they do, we learn about what the future of mental health is in this country. So really excited, definitely encourage everybody to show up Thursday night, 4.30 to six in the big ballroom. Uh, all my friends will be there and look forward to having you all participate and attend. That's awesome. It sounds like a very exciting and informative opening plenary for all of us who are curious about what the next election will bring and how that will change all of us as we progress in our careers and our passion in mental health. Following next, we'll talk about the uh, Friday morning um, plenary, talking a little bit about the Colorado story of integrated behavioral health, and I'll have uh, Randall talk more about that. Yeah, so um, we are going to tell the story of the growth of integrated behavioral health services in Colorado through a series of short narratives. It's going to be um, kind of fast-paced uh, multimedia approach. Uh, we're going to start off with a story of uh, Larry Mauch, one of the founders of CFHA and the Integrated Care Movement, coming out to Colorado on a sabbatical year for University of Washington and starting one of the first integrated care clinics and um, getting funding for that and doing research on that. And then we're going to sh uh, share the stories of different clinics around Colorado. We're able to get uh, assistance from uh, foundations and, and grant support. And then CFHA's role within uh, this development. We have Polly Kurtz coming to talk about that. She was the CEO of CFHA before uh, our current director, Natalia Serrano. Then we're going to have uh, Ben Miller, who you just heard, uh, talking about University of Colorado and how they play the role of a a pole star, a, a convener of, of great things around integrated care, kind of a, the, the motor behind much of, what, much of what we've done. Then we're going to have uh, take a look at rural Colorado and uh, efforts that have been done in rural Colorado to grow integrated care. And then finishing up with uh, discussing the this audacious venture called us uh, the state innovation model that um, just is just wrapped up and had the goal of having 80% of Coloradans having a primary care home with integrated behavioral health services. And so we have the CEO of that group and the head of their workforce uh, committee, Barbara Martin and Michael Telemontes giving, sharing a narrative. And then we're gonna hand it off to uh, two people that everybody knows, uh, Susan McDaniel and Frank Degree to help 
put all that conversation in context and figure out how other states can learn from our lessons and um, things you've done, where we've done well, and where we've stumbled along the way. And I think this is going to be a very fast-paced, fascinating uh, discussion that will be equal parts uh, enlightenment and art. That sounds so great. I know Colorado has done such great work in integrated behavioral health, and it's exciting to share those lessons with other parts of the country that are coming along um, their way. So that's really awesome. Um, we're going to talk next about the uh, medical improvisation, which is even more exciting um, as relating to providing care with uh, improv. So if uh, Alex Reed, you could talk more about that. Glad to. And I've heard, I'm not sure, but I, I heard that Friday night, we, there, may be a, uh, there may be an appearance by one of the local bands, uh, our good Dr. Miller and the integrators. So they may be doing a little rock and roll review. So, so we'll have to see. I'm hoping. I'm, I heard. I'm hoping that may happen. Uh, but after that, Saturday morning, get ready for a fantastic plenary, one that will, uh, you'll laugh, you'll, uh, you'll learn some skills, and really, uh, really take heart with some of the stories that you're going to hear from uh, Dr. Belinda Fu. You know, the way I kind of think about this is that in our own personal lives and in the lives of the people that we work with, uh, we and they move along a health continuum from healthy to ill, and we strive for well-being and can get overwhelmed by illness, stress, anxiety, cancer, all types of things. While it's easy to talk and ask about physical health, it can be harder to have those conversations about behavioral, emotional, and cognitive health. How do you begin to talk about this when you observe these things? How, you know, how do you have the, how do you be responsive? And it can feel pretty unpredictable and uncertain. And, you know, as a psychologist and teacher, I've looked for ways that I can, I can teach and work with others to think about these conversations. And I found, you know, I, I wondered about what principles and tools can I use to respond appropriately to unpredictable situations with a lot of different people. And I found through a colleague of mine, and this is Belinda Fu, she teaches about medicine and she teaches about improvisation theater. Improv is a genre grounded in performance art. It's focused on spontaneity and adaptability, collaboration, and most importantly, listening. And Belinda is going to teach us. She's going to teach us about how improv can be used to, to adapt to all of the uncertainty that our patients may be experiencing, that we may be experiencing in our professions. So, um, so there may even be a few exercises. I don't want to give, give away too much of it as well, um, but she is a phenomenal presenter. I've seen her, worked with her many times, and uh, generally she brings the audience to their feet with what she provides. That's really neat to be able to bring the theater world to medicine and to use some of those lessons to help all of us improve our patient care. And last but not least, we're going to talk about the rock and roll music that'll be happening on Saturday as well. Yeah, so um, just a personal story. This is Randall again. Uh, I was at a learning collaborative in the Denver area a couple of years ago, and one of the sessions was about the history of uh, mental health within rock and roll music. And, and it was presented by this uh, third year resident from Pueblo, Colorado. He had his really nice keyboard set up and he just spent like 45 minutes singing uh, rock and roll songs and um, sharing how they, the, the stories from uh, mental health within them and kind of the background story about the artist. And then we all just sang along and it was a highlight of, of the month for me. And we were just starting to plan the 2019 conference and I knew from the get-go that he needed to come. He's now a, a family physician in the Denver area and he does a dueling pianos show, like a sing-along show in Denver once a month. His name's Brian Juan and he's just uh, a fantastic performer and brings great energy. And I think a very powerful message about mental illness and, and our role in helping to support it. And so it's going to be kind of a, a perfect way to have some uh, lunchtime theater just to kind of uh, end the conference on a very positive note. That is awesome as well. Um, it sounds like we're going to have a lot of diversity in not just entertainment, but in education. So it's great to hear about all of these different plan areas and sessions that will not only improve our skills when working with patients, but 
give us a little bit of comfort and ease in how we do it. So that's really exciting. Well, thank you all for describing all of these wonderful sessions, and we'll look forward to seeing everybody at the 2019 conference coming up later this year. All right, and we're back. Thank you for to our conference co-chairs here in Denver who are putting together some exciting plenary experiences for us all. Uh, and thank you all for listening. So let's do our lead out. Grace, you you were blessed by Deepu with, uh, with the lead out for words today. words to so. share, a bit of a mindful, uh, a bit of a meditation about uh, eating and food. Food reveals our connection with the earth and to each other. Each bite contains the life of the sun, generosity of Mother Earth, and the preciousness of our connection to each other. We can see and taste the whole universe in a piece of bread and a cup of coffee. Contemplate on your food a few seconds before eating. Be grateful for the lives and hands that toiled and prepared your food to bring you joy, sustenance, and well-being. May we each be nourished to journey on mindfully. Awesome. Thanks, Grace. And once again, thanks to you all for listening. Once again, we love your feedback. So if you have any feedback, any thoughts about topics we've talked about or topics we should be talking about, please let us know at info at cfha.net. So for the integrated care team here uh, at CFHA, I'm Dr. Naftali Serrano. We hope you enjoyed our show and we hope you tune in next month um, as we lead up to our conference. For the integrated care podcast, I'm Dr. Naftali Serrano. We'll catch you soon.